Okay, first, I've never wanted to play Assassin's Creed more in my life. I want to talk to you about some of those lyrics, um, the ones that you heard, not that you read. Let me just read some of them back. A lot of you know the song well. For those of you who don't, listen intently, all right? I'm waking up to ash and dust, all right? We hear lines like that. I'm waking up, I feel it in my bones, enough to make my system blow. Welcome to the new age, to the new age. Welcome to the new age, to the new age. I'm radioactive, radioactive, I'm radioactive, I'm radioactive. You'll hear lines like this, this is it, the apocalypse. Um, all systems go, the sun hasn't died, deep in my bones, straight from inside. There's these words tucked in this song, and maybe you've heard it. Things like ash and dust, things like apocalypse, things like new age, with the constant refrain growing radioactive, 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 radioactive. Now here's the question. Out of any kind of context of what we've just shown, of what we're doing here on Sunday morning. If I was to come to you and have a conversation with you about ash and dust, radioactivity, and using words like apocalypse and new age, where do you think your mind might go? What might I be talking about? All right, see, I heard someone say revelation. You are way too Christian and way too churchy. All right? Unless you mean this. Unless you mean by revelation the end of the world. Because when I talk about ash and dust and radioactivity, what kind of image of the end of the world does it conjure? Nuclear war, right? Nuclear option. Nuclear war, I'm waking up to ash and dust. It's a revolution, I suppose. It's the beginning of something new. And remember, new doesn't always mean good, right? That, that can only be described as an apocalypse. Radioactive. Radioactive. The imagery of nuclear war saturates this song from beginning to end, right? Except... For those of you, especially those of you who know the song, who like the song, who, who listen to the song, did you ever for a moment actually think that what they were singing about was nuclear war? Probably not. So here's the question. Why do they use that language? If it's not actually talking about nuclear war, why does it use nuclear war language? Are they trying to deceive us? Are they trying to just trick us into thinking something or believing something? Are they lying to us? Or is it something different? Now, I don't know if the artists ever came out and released the meaning behind the song. But what you get the sense of as you read the lyrics is that this person who's singing it, the person who's expressing this, right, is describing something so cataclysmic in their own life, so, so, so epoch-changing, so life-changing that it can only be described in apocalyptic terms. 
What they're seeing, what they're experiencing, and what they're coming into is so radically and revolutionary different. You gotta use apocalyptic language to capture the essence of how life-shifting it actually happens to be. Are you with me on this? And can you kind of see that echoing through the song? It's one of the reasons I like that video, by the way. We're singing the song about the new age. We're singing the song about apocalypse. And yet, what was all the visual imagery that you saw? Revolutionary War. 1776. Was 1776 the apocalypse? Was 1776 the new age? In the biblical perspective, the age to come, most of us, and I hope you would agree with me on this, would go, probably not. And yet, I think we could all argue that something happened on the world landscape in 1776 that was so, in fact, life-changing trajection setting, impacting and rippling out through the centuries of eternity that using hypercharged apocalyptic language might actually work. Because somehow the big words without being literal capture the sense of how impacting it was in a way ordinary prose could not. Are you with me? Hold that there for a moment. Now, I, I believe that the Bible is God's message, that, that it's humming with his voice, and that when we read those words, God actually has a living message that he seeks to speak. And it's more than information, but it's something that transforms. It's something that, that brings life. It's something that, that moves and, and, and shakes and, and, and even at some level accomplishes his will. But one of the difficulties I've seen, and it's especially in settings like this, and by that what I mean is, is church world, is that there's this myth that's propagated and fostered upon people, often unsuspectingly, that the Bible is easy to read. You'll hear it come ways like this. Any child can open up the Bible and hear God's voice speaking to them. You know, I believe that. I believe that anyone with a basic level of literacy can open this book and start reading it, and while maybe not understanding vast chunks of it, still hear God's voice come through with certain levels of amazing clarity at certain points. So I don't want you to hear me denying that. But to say it is easy is something far different. I mean, this is a book that's denser than Shakespeare and has more characters than War and Peace. And I find that by telling people it's easy does nothing but make them feel like fools. People with high school degrees, people with college degrees going, I've tried to read this thing and I don't know what's going on and I'm not sure what the author's saying and I don't even know where this is going and, and, and you find that sense of inner frustration and futility and then you got some fool on Sunday telling you it's easy and any child could read it, right? And, <laughs> and you just kind of walk away. You just kind of walk away either dejected or sad or feeling 
stupid or what's wrong with me or you've been there, haven't you? And I found that this is true. The difficulty, the wrestling that has to take place happens in no greater way than in this area of the Bible called apocalyptic. We've heard this term, right? The apocalypse. Apocalyptic. We just sang about it in the song. And when I say apocalyptic, I'm curious what kind of imagery or what kind of setting gets conjured for you. For me, it's things like this. It's the end of the world. Apocalypse is the end of the world. It's, it's blood and, and, and billows of smoke and, and fire and seas boiling and the dead rising from the grave and, and, and cats and dogs living together and, uh, you know, mass hysteria. You get, you get like the Hollywood version of the end of the world. You get left behind series within the Christian world. But for us, apocalyptic often means that time, someplace in the future, cataclysm in the end. And what's fascinating to me is that that's not actually what the word apocalypse means. You might not realize this. When you say apocalypse, you're speaking Greek. Apocalypse is a Greek word. And it's often not translated. People just say the Greek word in English, apocalypse. But what did it mean in Jesus' day to the people who chose to pen that word in the pages of this message from God. It's right here. It's all it means. Is revealing. An apocalypse is something that makes something clear. Which is so wonderfully ironic to me that the book of Revelation, whose Greek name actually is Apocalypse, seems to be for most people the most unrevealed book in the Bible. I mean, it's like, God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Yeah, here, it's, it's made clear, right? But that's what it means. It is an unveiling. It, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, pulling, it's pulling the curtain away, uh, letting the scales drop from the eyes. It's God going, there's mysteries in this world. There's mysteries in my will. There's deep wisdom that I don't often share of what's going on behind the scenes. But every now and then, I'm going to pull back the covers. I'm going to open the pages I'm going to reveal it. This is an apocalypse. Apocalypse is not about the end of the world, though it can certainly speak to that. But fundamentally, it is not about the end of the world. It is about this world. Right here, right now, your life, and what God is up to in the midst of it. Let me show you how this works. I want you to pull out a Bible today. There's some under your chairs if you didn't bring your own. And um, pull it out, and we're going to open up to one of these, what, 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 what we're calling Bible remix songs. It's Psalm 18, one of these deep-cut B-side album psalms that gets very little airtime and yet is just pulsing with the message from God. Psalm 18. We got to read it with Assassin's Creed just a minute ago, but now I want you to get your eyes in the text for yourself, and let's see what's happening here. Now, 
When you flip there, you're going to see there is probably a smaller fonted section that precedes the psalm, a little description what the psalm is about. It's called a colophon, okay? And here's what it says for the director of music. So it's a song. It was a song of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Let me explain before we go in. David, this David here, is a nobody. He came from the smallest clan in Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He came from an unimportant family within that tribe. And even within that family, he was the youngest. He was the forgotten kid. You know, the redheaded stepchild who was kind of pushed out there. You know what I mean? All of his brothers were strong, did well at school, got scholarships. Hey, David, go take care of the sheep. He was young, unimpressive, forgotten. And God comes to this prophet named Samuel. And he says, you see that one, David? No, I don't mean his older brothers. No, I don't mean that guy over there that's tall and charismatic. No, that one. You see him. That's the future king of Israel. Go anoint him. You know what the problem with saying something like that is? What do you do if you're already the king of Israel and God is saying that about someone else? Let me introduce you to Saul. Saul was the king of Israel at this time. The king when David was still tending sheep. Saul was tall. The Bible describes him as being a head taller than everyone else. You noticed Saul. Charismatic. Strong. Proud. Warrior. Kind of guy you want to follow. You know those people in life? They're just like good-looking and confident and amazing. Like, kind of like me, right? Uh, and, <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. It just, and I'm so glad most of you know that. Yeah, right? yeah baby. You know what I mean? No, you know those people in life that you're just drawn to, people you just want to follow. This was Saul. And then the Samuel guy comes along and says, Make David king. What do you do? Saul goes off the deep end. He sees himself losing his grip. On his kingdom, on God. He got into a bad place with God, seeing himself not so much as a servant of God, but God as a servant of him. What can you do for me, God? How do you make my life better, God? How do you fit into my agenda, Lord? And when God didn't, taking things into his own hands and going his own way. And you can read the story, and it's really a tragedy. You can read about it in this book called 1 Samuel in the Old Testament of the jealousy, the mental slip, losing his grip, the anger and the resentment that keeps welling up on Saul as he is unable to submit himself to God's lead. 
and he bends his life on destroying David. One who became his, his most trusted soldier. One who defended him in thick and thin. One who had multiple opportunities to overthrow him and never took the chance but lowered himself before Saul instead. And Saul's bent on killing him. David goes on the run. He's hiding in caves. He's an outlaw. He's a refugee. So many times, a hairbreadth away from death, leaving his wife, leaving his family, leaving his home, living on the run. Living on the run simply because of a madman in pursuit. But God's plans still come to fruition. And there comes this moment when Saul is overthrown and David is now able to step into position as king. And at least according to the psalm, this is the song that David sang. The song that David sang when Saul, when he was delivered from Saul in the hand of all his enemies. Let's read. Verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield. He is the horn, a symbol of strength, of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. I am saved from my enemies. Listen to, to, to David explain now what it was like for him when he was on the run from Saul. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Now read how God delivered him. Look at how David sings about how God did this. David has enemies. The key one is Saul. What does God do? The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because God was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim, these monstrous angels, and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. God shot his arrows and scattered the enemies, those great bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. And the foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils, God reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me, who confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted me. 
So it's the song of rescue. It's the song of how God came down and rescued him, right? What kind of picture do you get in your mind for how God overthrew David's enemies and delivered him? It's totally apocalyptic, isn't it? Blood and fire and billows of smoke, God ripping open heaven, God throwing lightning bolts down, God mounting the wings of angels, the the angelic host flooding down. I mean, you get like images out of Lord of the Rings in your mind, don't you? Images like out of Revelation and the end of the world in your mind, don't you? Wouldn't it like be great? If you were like into it with someone, someone was just after you and like God's like, I got this and heaven opens and like the angelic glowing host comes down and you hear the roaring of lions and you hear, you know, the the sound of thunder and you see lightning bolts being thrown. Isn't it how it describes God delivering David? Here's what's so weird about it. If you were there when God delivered David, it wouldn't have looked like that at all. And here's how we know. Because that same book I mentioned earlier, 1 Samuel, talks about it. This book that's recording the history of Israel talks about how it actually went down that day. Let me share from you from the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31. It says this. Now the Philistines, those ancient enemies of Israel, they fought against Israel. Israel under Saul, mind you. And the Israelites fled before them. And many fell slain on this, this, this mountain, the Mount of Gilboa. Saul as king was out there leading his armies. But the fighting grew fierce around him. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these Philistines, these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Does that sound like, like thunder and lightning and fire and billows of smoke to you? I mean, where's the cherubim? I thought God was like mounted on the cherubim, coming to battle, striking down David's enemies. Where's heaven being ripped apart? Where's the cataclysm? Or if I can use the pop turn... Where's the apocalypse? It ain't there. They got outnumbered. The archers got lucky. Saul got wounded. And he throws himself on his own sword. That's what actually happened. So why does David say all this stuff in Psalm 18? I mean, is the guy just like deluded or is he lying? Now think about it. Why come out and say, you know, what happened 
was God came down from heaven. He ripped the skies apart. He threw his lightning bolts. God shot his arrows. Because sometimes it takes big language to capture the significance of what seems to be ordinary, everyday things. Why does Imagine Dragons talk about his own new coming of life in terms of radioactivity and atomic warfare? The same reason David talks about this incident as being a cataclysmic event of God. Because sometimes the only way you can truly capture the essence and importance of what has happened is to use that kind of language and that kind of imagery. And I think that's significant, and I think it's deeply significant for this. Because it shows us something. That God is involved in everyday, ordinary things. Life can seem very ordinary. And I love how Mark put it in that opening song. Sometimes leaving you with the sense of, is God there? Is God involved? Does God care? Life just seems to go one day to the next without any blood or fire or billows of smoke, without the heavens being rent open, without lightning bolts coming down. But what Psalm 18 invites us to see and what David knew is that God is involved in ordinary events. That the God who is big invests and involves himself in the small things. And those small things that we are so easily to dismiss are actually big things for God. David wasn't high. David's not delusional. David did not actually think that lightning bolts came down from heaven and struck Saul. He heard the news. But he knew God's hand was in this. He knew God was on the move. He knew God was present. God was active. God was working. God was behind the scenes. And in Psalm 18, David reveals it. He makes it apocalyptic. He shows God's hand through language appropriate to God of how in his life he was involved in this seemingly ordinary, everyday thing, accomplishing his purpose and bringing about his will. And that's the Psalm 18 message, I think, to us too. To see the big God in the little things and to remember that to God they are not little things if they are big to you. And to know that even when you can't see the fire and the lightning and the heavens being opened, God's hand is present Alive and on the move, bringing things about to accomplish his will. So, maybe just a couple of takeaways for this. And jump to that last slide for me, would you? 
some ways to see God's hand in your own life? What are the little ways you've seen God work? And I'm talking in retrospect right now. Things you prayed for, things you were worried about, things you hoped for, things that just, oh, I'm glad it went that way. You know what I'm talking about? Do you see God's hand in that? Maybe it's time we do. And as you do, thank him. Thank him for coming down from heaven on the cherubim. Right now, what are the everyday things God's hand might be in today? Things you don't know, things you're not sure, things you're unaware of, things you can't see. Start looking for them. Start learning how to recognize his hand and his presence. And I tell you, you'll realize we're in a universe that's humming with a living God. And let me throw this one out as well. What are the everyday acts of obedience that you can jump into? Because for God, little things are big things. And it's in those little, ordinary, everyday things that he will work his mighty wonders too. What are they? Whatever it might be. Don't wait. Start them today. And see the revelation of God start to unfold in your midst. I want to invite you to rise. Band's going to come up, lead us in a final song. And as they do, there's a new psalm aside from 18 that we're going to be looking at every week through this month of April and May. It's 46. It's one of my favorite it parallels upside along 18 in a lot of ways and maybe just make it your own prayer today if you would with me God is our refuge and strength an ever present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, refuge and strength, ever-present, no matter the trouble. Do not be afraid. You might not see him. It might not look like what you think it should look like. But even if your mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, know that he's there. Be still. And know that he's got it. He's got you. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.